Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word, for the gift of revelation. God, this morning as we dive into your word, I pray that you can truly teach us. God, I pray that you can truly send a fresh revelation onto us this morning that will help us follow you, help us understand what it means to follow you, and it will allow us to grow and mature in our relationship with you. God, we're so thankful that you are our God. Jesus, we're thankful that you are our Savior. And this morning, I pray that we continue to learn and grow in what it means to be a follower of yours. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. This morning, in our text, we are on the heels of Jesus performing one of his great, great miracles, which is raising Lazarus from the dead. Last week, Tyler took, walked us through that great, great miracle, he, and he really did a wonderful job of helping us understand how that miracle can apply to our lives today. And now this week, we meet Jesus right after he performs that miracle, and we're in this interesting moment in the ministry of Christ. Jesus now feels the very real and imminent threat of his crucifixion on, that, that, that is about to get ready to come on. It's getting closer and closer that he is about to die. So he does not leave the region of Jerusalem, right? He stays near Bethel, but Passover is approaching, right? And because Passover is approaching, he actually goes back to Bethany, and he stays with the family of Lazarus. Now, tension is filling the air because Martha, Mary, and the disciples all know that Jesus' death is coming. There's a lot of tension. So what they do now is they say, we're going to host a dinner for Jesus not only to sort of release some of this tension, but also to celebrate because, hey, our brother is here. The one who was once dead has been risen, so we're going to celebrate this and commemorate it by throwing, by throwing and hosting a dinner for the one who rose him from the dead. At this, at this uh, dinner, Mary, one of the sisters, anoints Jesus' feet with oil. But, you know, I have to say, I want to go to verse 2. I found this hilarious. So it says, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. And before we get into to, to Mary and, and anointing Jesus' feet, John says that Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. I love this. Lazarus is a man after my own heart. Lazarus is like, you know, man, I ain't ate this good. And I don't know how long. Y'all realize I was dead a few days ago? I'm, I'm about to eat this turkey. I'm about to eat some dressing. I'm about to eat some macaroni and cheese. I just, it's a Thanksgiving table, as you can see in early Jewish Palestine history. So, so I'm about to eat all this good food that Martha cooked for me. Martha, you put your foot in this food. And guess what my boy did? He reclined. He got the itis. He reclined back and said, man, y'all go ahead and celebrate. I'm going to sleep this food off. I love that. Lazarus is a man after my own heart. But at this dinner, Mary, one of the sisters, makes 
an astonishing gesture toward Jesus. The text says that Mary goes and she gets this very expensive nard, this expensive perfume, and she anoints the feet of Jesus. Historians say that this nard that she gets was actually imported from northern India. It was this very lavish and expensive spice, and it was said to be worth 300 denarii. And, and, and 300 denarii, just to put it in some context, right, was worth a year's wages of a day laborer, right? So, 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 so just the average worker that would work a nine to five, that was a year's worth of their wages that was valued with this perfume. So she takes this perfume and she washes the feet of Jesus. And uniquely, she uses her, she uses her hair. And the reason why her using her hair is a unique fact in this is because typically at that time, Jewish women would not unbound their hair in public. They would usually only unbound their hair when they were in front of their husbands. So everyone there would have been astonished and shocked that Mary would use her hair to wash the feet of Jesus. We don't really know why she chooses to do this, but she chooses to do this, and it's, it's, it's shocking. It's very, very shocking. And Jesus is pleased with this gesture of devotion, honor, and appreciation. You know, church, this week, as I was reading this, I was struck by something Jesus does here. Because when we think about Jesus, right, the Savior of the world, what we always have to remember about our Savior is that Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, his words, his sayings, he's always trying to teach us what it means to be human, what it means to truly be alive. So therefore, we pay attention to everything he says. We pay attention to everything he does, his actions and his words. And I was struck by something he does here. So Jesus receives this ointment. He receives this very kind gesture from Mary. And, 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 and I have to say, if I had not read all of this, right, and you tell me, that someone goes to Jesus with this extremely expensive perfume and they wash his feet. What I would have guessed, church, is that Jesus would have been like, no, 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 don't do that for me. It's too expensive, right? Like, you don't have to do all of that for me. But what the Savior does is he receives the appreciation. He receives the honor. Why is this important? Because I think that Jesus is trying to demonstrate, right, that a part of the human experience is to always accept the evaluation of the imago Dei within all of us. What do I mean? We were all created in the image of God. God saw fit to create each in every one of us. He gave us unique talents, unique gifts, and capabilities unique to our personalities, unique to our personhood, and we have all been called to love and serve our families, our friends, our community, and our local context. 
right? And, and, and when we are doing this, when we are serving the Lord through serving others, when we're living out our calling, God is going to put people in our lives that will say to us, I appreciate what you're doing. I affirm what you're doing. The reason I thought this was important was because I think some of us, right, maybe many of us, struggle at times, maybe, with low self-esteem, with, 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 feel, with, with the feeling of unworthiness, with an imposter syndrome, thinking that we are not worthy to be a part or to be included in certain spaces. We feel like we're going to be found out, that we're, we're going to be fraudulent. Struggle with low self-esteem. And there are times in our lives when we receive a compliment, when we receive an appreciation, that we think we are unworthy of it. We think that we shrug it off. We, 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 we walk it off. We say, no, it's okay. You don't have to say that about me. And Jesus here is saying, is saying that it's okay to receive an appreciation because it is always going to be okay for, for, for someone to affirm the inherent dignity and value that is within you as a child of God. He gives us permission to receive an appreciation that we may think we're not always worthy of. He says that because you are my child, because you are, because I created you in my image. You're worthy. You're valuable. Because I have instilled so much within you, and there are times where I'm going to put people in your life to call that out. And I want you to know that it's okay to say thank you. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for affirming me. Thank you for giving me the energy I need to continue to walk in my calling. Right? And of course, we got Martha. We're also called to honor the dignity of others. And one way we do that is by showing our appreciation. It's okay to receive appreciation. I hear you, baby. It's okay to receive that appreciation. And it's also imperative of us to show appreciation, right? When we see someone in our lives, Doing the work of the Spirit, being kind, being helpful, but when we see it happening in our local context, in our community, in our families, right? It's imperative that we vocalize, I see you. I notice you. I affirm you and what you're doing. This is why we really emphasize emotional healthy language here. In any emotionally healthy relationship, one aspect of that is that people are showing appreciation for each other, receiving it and also giving it out. And I think the Savior gives us full permission to receive it in a humble posture. Thank you for seeing and affirming what you see God doing in my life. Thank you. For, 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 for truly acknowledging what God is doing in my life. Taking that in and saying, now that I feel that appreciation, I'm going to more boldly walk 
and the calling God has on my life. And also showing you. I see you. I notice you. I affirm you. I honor you. That's what Mary's doing. Right? Usually, this perfume is reserved to rub or honor someone who's already dead. It's reserved for the burial, the burial site. But Mary does something different. Rather than, waiting for, rather than waiting for Jesus to die, she honors him while he's alive. She says, I'm going to show you this appreciation. I'm going to honor you right here and right now. In an emotionally healthy relationship, in a spiritually mature relationship, appreciation is always welcome and value. The giving of it and the receiving of it. It's both and. As we move forward, we got our boy Judas. Doggone Judas. I tell you what, man, Judas going to always Judas. Am I right? What this joker saying now? Judas Ascarot. We in verse 4, church. Judas Ascarot. One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, Lord have mercy. This is what he said, church. He said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself. He used, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And then the Savior gets up and says, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Oh, dear Judas. So Judas tries to put on his so-called social justice hat, right? Judas, the social justice warrior, the, the, the mighty activist, right? Why are you spending that expensive perfume on Jesus' feet? We ought to sell that and give it all to the poor. <laughs> and of course, Jesus sees through it all. He sees through all the lies and the false intentions. Because, see, Jesus' so-called social justice attitude was called out for what it really is, Right? Jesus calls it out as that you're not actually worried about the poor, you're greedy. You're greedy in two ways. First way, you're greedy in the way that you want, you're greedy in a way in terms of notice, right? Look at me, look at me, look at me. All you other spectator disciples out there, y'all just watching him do this, but look at me. I'm a real social justice warrior. I'm a real advocate. I speak truth to power, so I should be honored for that. And then obviously, he's greedy because he's about dishonest gain. He steals from the ministry of Jesus. Every dollar that was taken in to the ministry, every dollar that was given to the ministry, Judas was known and had the reputation of taking from that pot, taken from the budget. Jesus knows this, and he knows that his intentions are not pure whatsoever. 
right? Now, y'all know me by this point. As much as I want to judge Judas as a sinner, it's, I, it, it, I just can't judge him. Because the same sin that compelled Judas to do this is the same sin that also lives in me. And what it teaches us is this. It teaches us that when we are going before Jesus, when we are talking to Jesus, when we're trying to do something for Christ, we have to always check our intentions. Why are we doing this? Why am I doing this? Am I doing this for the good of the kingdom? Am I doing this for the good of those who I'm trying to serve? Or am I doing this for me and my glory and my pride like Judas here? And we've all been victims of this before. We've all been victims of pride. I want to do this to look good. So as much as I want to judge our dear brother Judas, it's like, uh, I've been there. I've been where you are, Judas. I've been, I've done what you've done, Judas. And praise God, we have a Savior who forgives, who redeems, and now gives us all the power to overcome that very thing that compels us to be selfish and greedy at times with our intentions. And I have to say, Jesus' response to this, so, Jude, so Judas is the fake social justice warrior, <laughs> but Jesus is social justice incarnate. He's the real deal man to holy field. This is Jesus we're talking about here, right? And, and what I love about this is that Jesus, right, is not only concerned with the many, but he's also concerned with the poor that's, in, that's right in front of him. Because, see, Mary in this instance also deserves justice, right? But See, Mary in this instance has just been publicly humiliated, publicly shamed, publicly embarrassed, and publicly made to feel like she is lesser than because of what she's doing. And Jesus boldly rises up. Stands in the gap and says what? Leave her alone. He's her advocate. He's her savior. This is social justice in action. See, Jesus is not so externally minded about the many and the masses that he forgets the people right in front of him. Not just the physically poor, but in this case, the emotionally poor. The people who are made to feel like they are less because of what they are doing and, 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 because, and because of how they're being judged by someone on the outside. Leave her alone. Sometimes we think of that word poor in such a distant way, like Judas. Judas ain't thinking about no poor. He ain't thinking about nobody. But see, Jesus had... He has so many names in mind on the outside and on the inside, right there with him. Leave her alone. Allow her to honor me, to appreciate me while I am living before I die. Before I go, allow her to appreciate me. Allow her to do a righteous and good thing. Leave her 
alone. So Jesus had to set our boy Judas in check. Don't come for the Savior, because the Savior showed enough will come for you. My God, my God. Now, let, 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 check this out. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account on him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. <laughs> the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews are going, were going away and believing in Jesus. This is astonishing. Why is that? The chief priests, y'all know, these doggone Pharisees, the evidence of the divinity of Jesus was right in front of them. Lazarus, who was once dead, is now alive. Who but God? Who but someone with the presence and power of God could do such a thing? Rather than allow the evidence to change their minds, they try to destroy the evidence. They try to destroy it. They try to get rid of it. They say they want to kill Lazarus to erase proof that Christ has done something truly divine. This is what happens when we, let, when, when we let sin so badly infect us that it causes us to do illogical things. This makes absolutely no sense. Rather than, rather than simply admitting that we got it wrong, we didn't get it right, this is the Messiah. This is the promised Savior. Rather than admit that, they want to cling to their power. They want to cling to their status. They want to cling to their greed. And say, rather than admitting that, we're going to destroy the evidence. We've got to get rid of Lazarus. Can you imagine? What a response. A response to something truly miraculous. A response to something truly otherworldly. We're not going to believe it. We're going to erase the evidence. And church, in our lives, we have to be very careful. When we are going through the circumstances of life, tough circumstances, we have to be very careful when our minds are so clouded by grief, sadness, anger, and despair. When we're in those dark places, the enemy will try to compel us to erase evidence. The enemy will try to compel us to forget the experiences we've had with God where he has not forsaken us and where he has shown up for us in every season of our lives. We cannot erase the evidence. We cannot attempt to erase the evidence. We cannot cling to things that are not of God, that are not of his kingdom. We have to cling to heavenly things. Cling to those things that will truly get us through, help us navigate whatever we're going through. And remember that in every single season of our lives, God is there. He's there. 
the nearness of God is the goodness of God. Because as long as he's near, his promises are near. His word is near. His truth is near. And boy, if I got that on my side, I can get through it all. Do not erase the evidence. Do not forget the evidence. Faith. Faith. Have faith. And don't be like these doggone Pharisees. Amen? Amen. Let's keep it moving. All right. We get to verse 12. It's like a scene. It's almost like we have like a two-act play today. Like act one is finished, and now we're going to act two. So now we're going to, we get to Palm Sunday. <laughs> we're at Palm Sunday now. So verse 12, the next day, here we go, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even as the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay. So yeah, this passage, it's known as Palm Sunday. This is one of the preceding events to the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is, this, this is such an interesting moment in the ministry of Jesus because he's fulfilling Old Testament scripture, right, by coming on a donkey. And people, because of the miracle he just did, are like, yo, this the king. He just rose somebody from the dead. If this ain't the dude, I don't know who is. So they're, they're hype. They lit. They're like, yo, we, we got him. The king is here. Hosanna. Hosanna. All hail the king of Israel. But, oh, Lord. But their notion of the king of Israel was set in a military and political sense. So they expected Jesus to use his miraculous powers to overthrow Rome. If you can raise somebody from the dead, man, you ought to go Avatar Last Airbender on this thing, man. You ought to just take, you ought to just take out the whole thing. Take out Rome, right? And see, what's interesting is that the waving of the palm branches, as they were doing, it is a Jewish national symbol that the king has come and that victory has been won over the enemy. But in this case, these folks had the wrong enemy in mind. Jesus did not come to destroy the enemy of Rome. He came to destroy the enemy of sin. And see, here's the thing. I love this because it is so fitting, right, that this event, and really the, the, the crucifixion event, is so closely linked or so closely proximate to the Passover. Because, see, the Passover, the Jews celebrated how God delivered them out of Egypt and delivered them out of slavery, right? But what we learn, right, is that once they were out of Egypt, they were still enslaved to something that, that, that shackled them, 
right? They still were enslaved to something that made them rebel against God, that made them disobey God. God gave them the Ten Commandments, and as, as hard as they tried, they could not obey. They constantly rebelled. They could not go in and take the promised land that God promised them because they would not listen to God. And God says, you know, I did this for my people once. I brought you out of an oppressive regime, but you were still shackled. You were still locked in chains in the chains of sin. So therefore, I have to come and defeat the ultimate enemy that is at root of all that is wrong with the world, and that is sin. I have to destroy the very thing that keeps you out of my will, and that's sin. That's the true enemy. And Jesus realizes this. He says that I don't want you to be so wholly concerned with your Roman citizenship. I come to set you free so that you can walk into your heavenly citizenship. That's why I've come. And, and, and we have to realize, and I think Jesus, Jesus realizes this too. He says the source of imperialism, the source of every oppressive regime is sin. The source of corruption, the source of evil, the source of the brokenness of every politician that's behind every broken system in this world is sin. So if I don't defeat that enemy, there is no hope. There's no hope at all. So you think you need independence from Rome, but see, I know as your Savior, you need independence from sin. I want you to walk, children of God. I want you to live, children of God, in the fullness of who God has created you to be. I want you to live, and I mean truly live, and I cannot do this if I don't destroy the true enemy. The enemy that so easily bumps you up, the enemy that so easily compels you to do the opposite of what I'm calling you to do. The children of Israel, then I realized, yes, they were calling Jesus his true name, the king of Israel, but they had a misconceived notion of what he was delivering them from. And this is the work of Jesus, right? Jesus exist to challenge every single notion that we have of what it means to be alive. He exists to give his divine take, his otherworldly perspective of what it means to live. And while we over here saying, Jesus, we need this, he's always saying, nah, you don't. I'm over here. See, the world has taught you that you need that. But see, I'm from a different world, a world that you were created to exist in, but a world that you have been shut out of because you consistently rebel against everything that I say. 
and I'm here to end that rebellion. I'm here to end the generational curses of disobedience. It's time. And in order for me to deliver you, I have to defeat Rome by dying. I have to defeat the world by dying. And in defeating the world through my death, I will overcome it, set you free, and give you the power you need to overcome the sinful nature that keeps you out of my will and in the will of the world. That's the good news. The good news is that as Jesus (laughs) is riding through town on that donkey, he is a shepherd king. He is a pastoral king. Looking at those people, knowing full well, y'all are yelling for me right now, but in a few days, y'all are going to be yelling to crucify me. The same folks that were yelling Hosanna, a few days later, will be yelling crucify, crucify. And Jesus is saying, I came to set you free from that. I came to set you free from your false notions of what it means to be free and what it means to be alive. In order for me to do that, I have to defeat the enemy. Let's jump down to verse, let's go to verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gained, the world has gone after him. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees are continuing their pursuit of unsubstantiating every act that Jesus has done to prove his divinity and to prove that he's the coming Messiah. And they look at themselves and say, guys, we're failing. Look, they're following him. They're bearing witness to him. So again, it's astonishing. Rather than join the party and bear witness to what they're seeing, They cling to power. And I love how John uses that word, bear witness. I love that. Because I think in our own lives, as I come to a close, too often we get so caught up in the mundaneness and just the everydayness of our lives that we forget to bear witness to what God has done and what God is doing in our lives. Right? We forget to bear witness. And bearing witness is not complicated, right? Bearing witness simply is worshiping God on our car ride to work, praying to the Lord when we drop our kids off to school, praying for our coworkers, praying for our family members. Bearing witness is simply acknowledging what God has done 
and what God is doing. And there's a calling on all of our lives daily to bear witness, not just to the big and grandeur stuff that God has done, but to the way that God sustains us and keeps us every single day. It is an acknowledgement that without you, Lord, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. That if you are not with me every single day, I will lose my mind. I will lose my mind. Right? You keep me, God. You sustain me, God. And I thank you. I thank you, Jesus, for the ways in which you consistently take care of me when I don't always know how to take care of myself. I bear witness to the majesty of God. Even in the hard times, he's there. He's right there with me. And when I acknowledge that he's there, I can feel his nearness. I can feel his presence. And the warmth and embrace of his presence is a thing that gives me the strength to keep going, to keep going, to continue on. They bear witness. And, and, and let us not bear witness the way they did, because they bear witness because they had their own agenda, right, for Christ. Oh, you can raise people from the dead? Bro, come, come do what I need you to do. No, 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 don't work like that, fam. Now that you've bared witness to my divinity, I've proven to you that I'm God. And I've proven to you that I'm worthy of following. So now that you've bared witness to who I am, I've proven this to you. Now you have to follow me. That's what it requires. I don't bring my agenda to you, God. I'm submitting my agenda, and I want your will to be in my life. That's the trade, right? I bear witness to you as the one who is in control of my life, as the one who guides my life. That is what bear witness means. I don't bring my agenda to you, my precious Savior and King. No, I'm submitting to your agenda for my life. And I want to be who you want me to be. I want to walk how you want me to walk. I want to live how you want me to live. Because you've proven that you are the great sustainer an author of all of life. And because you can do all that for everything, I know you can do it for me too. So I submit to you, Lord, and I bear witness to your majesty, your power, and your strength. Let's pray.